No eye has seen, no ear has heard How the glory of God is gonna cover the world What will silence the tongues of men Give our children freedom to dance for sure. <laughs> Jesus, uh, I pray that you really would uh, burn within us, that uh, Lord God, you would plant your word within us 
and that, uh, Lord God, your word would grow in us and that, uh, Jesus, we would never be the same. Thank you, Lord God, that you love us so. And now we ask that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, uh, I brought something to, to show you. I think uh, this is uh, the best Christmas present that I got uh, this year. It's, it's a picture, a photo that I took like 15 years ago of my uh, four kids. And so Susan and the kids at Christmas put it in this frame and, and gave it to me on Christmas morning. It sits on my desk just down the hall. In fact, that's what you see there, the top of, uh, of my desk. Here's a better view of the picture. These are my four kids. Each one of them is like a, a deep well. This is, this is Jonathan. No words can adequately describe him. He feels things very deeply. That can trap a person within themselves. Or that can lead a person to hang on a cross for others. John is going to Red Rocks College and he's working not far from here at Open Doors Ministries with underprivileged kids. You can see that he's practicing already on his little brother, Coleman. That's Coleman. He's my youngest. He's 16 now. I think he may be the most resilient person that I have ever met, which made him pretty much impossible to spank because afterwards he'd just smile at you and say, what can we do now, Daddy? Um, he's tough. He's a warrior, a warrior, and that's incredibly good if you're in the right war. But lots of great kids are born into the wrong war. In fact, maybe we all are. Well, I think Coleman would do just anything for me. This is his older sister, Elizabeth, my second. And, and check this out. She's telling me what to do while I'm, <laughs> while I'm taking the, the picture. Every night when she was little, she prayed this prayer with sincerity every night. She prayed, Jesus, thank you that I know everything in the world. Understandably, uh, that's been something of an, of an issue with her little brother, the warrior, over the years. When, when Elizabeth was little, we figured that she'd either be an international terrorist or the very first female president of the United States of America. She's studying international relations now at Colorado State University, and her heart is uh, far too tender for international terrorism, and, and yet I know this. I know that the evil one has a way of taking tender little hearts and making them very hard. This is uh, Rebecca. Uh, you'll remember that Isaac met Rebecca at a well, and, and that's Becky. She's centered and she's deep. And that introspection can become a prison or it can become a safe house, a fortress, a, a harbor for others. And, and that's Becky. She's a, she's a friend for life. Once when she was little, I remember she placed my head on, on her lap and she stroked my hair and she said, Daddy, I'll be the mommy and you be the little baby. <laughs> that's Christmas when the father becomes the baby. Well, just staring at this picture tears my heart from my chest, like Jesus from the bosom of the father. My children, each, each one of them, a deep well, a universe that holds my heart and my heart holds them. This picture is uh, of my computer screen on the left, see right next to the picture on the right. This is the picture that's on my computer screen. 
screen. <laughs> it's a picture that I took last summer when we hiked up to Hanging Lake near Glenwood Springs. This is how you would see my kids today, something like this. But when I, their father, see this, I also see this. And a whole bunch of things in between. Times in between. Times when their well just seemed so dry and times that it flowed with living water. Times when they were tempted to prisons of fear and shame and times when they loved just like, like Jesus. And times when they were conscripted into the wrong war and times when they just fought for love. Times when they were little terrorists and times they led the way with grace. And this is the really strange thing when you reflect upon it. But when they were little terrorists, when they were big terrorists, I, I didn't love them less. In fact, it felt like I loved them more. And when they were trapped in prisons of self-pity, fear, and, and shame, my, my heart was trapped with them. And then when they would share those places of terror and shame, well it, well, it was there that I received the greatest gift of all, a broken and fertile heart. It was their faith and mercy took root. And the stories are too personal to tell, but, but it's there that uh, in those places I know them best. And they know me best. A communion. Those people in the picture frame on my desk, I am them and they are me. And I think it's become impossible for me to not love them. Now there are those that would say, well gosh, that's, that's kind of dangerous because that kind of makes you a bad father for they can, they can sin and your grace will, will just abound so they don't have to fear you. And yet you see, that's another rather strange thing. Actually, they should fear me most. Not because I don't love them, but because I love them so much. And because my love will not stop. You know, uh, if one of their friends starts taking dope flunking classes and lying to their parents, I'll say, well, golly, you know, that's, that's just too bad. But that friend, that kid, certainly doesn't need to fear me because I don't really care. However, if that kid is one of my kids, it's, a, it's another story. And oh yeah, they, they had better uh, fear me because I will love them. I'll love them a lot. I mean, I'll love them by grounding them to outer darkness in their room where, where they'll weep and they'll gnash their teeth. I'll love them and, and my love will burn like fire. And if they, if they run, if they hide, I'll find them. They better fear me because th this love that I have for them won't stop. It's eternal. They better fear me until they can look me in the eye and say, Daddy, I know you love me. And so I'll stop running, I'll, I'll stop hiding. I'm no longer afraid. Do you understand that? They better fear me because I love them. They better fear me till my love casts out that very fear. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. I can't not love them. It's become my, my nature. Not, not, not perfectly. I'm not love as God is love, but, but I'm being made in his image and, and I, think, I think I'd gladly die for, for anyone in this picture. So their joy is my joy. Their sorrow is my sorrow. If they're trapped in hell, my heart is trapped there with them. And if you hurt one of them, you hurt me. If you harm one of them, I bleed.
wrath. I bleed wrath. Love bleeds wrath. Wrath. If you harm them, I bleed wrath. That shocked me as a new father. For all at once, I understood, I understood wrath. If, if you harm them, I bleed wrath. But what do I do if one of them harms himself or herself? What do I do with all the wrath? What do I do if one of my children harms another of my children? What do I do with all the wrath? What if some of them gang up on like, like one of them, perhaps it's jealousy, but, but they exclude him, reject him, beat him, they sell him into bondage, faking his death in order to deceive me? Sounds far-fetched, I know, but, but these things do happen. What if, what do I do if my kids go to war with each other? What do I do with all that wrath? All that passion? We say, I absolutely hate it when they hate each other. But I absolutely love it when they love each other. The greatest gift they give me is believing my love and loving me in return. And the second is like it. That they love each other. That they see what I see. Priceless treasure. Priceless treasure in one picture frame on my desk. Now, talking like that, I know for some of you, can be kind of painful. You may be thinking, gosh, I, I, I'm alone, and I want nothing more than to have my picture in a frame on a desk of a father who loves me and considers that picture his very best Christmas present ever. I want nothing more. Well, you see, I think that's exactly what you have. And when you see it, that revelation changes everything. John chapter four, verse three. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave, had given to his son Joseph. Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And so Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That, on a, that animosity in, in the Middle East today between Jews and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, is probably rather minor to the animosity between Jews and Samaritans in Jesus' day. There had been uh, open warfare at times between Judah and Samaria. The temple on Gerizim had been destroyed uh, by Judeans and by Judah. And now the Romans occupied the country and so there was no longer any open warfare, just seething resentment. In, in John 8, 48, when, quote, the Jews hurl insults at Jesus, they don't use our standard potty words. No, they need something worse. So this is what they say. Ain't it the truth? You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Well, Jesus has a conversation. Jesus the Jew has a conversation with an outcast, outcast, this lonely Samaritan woman. It moves from thirst to promiscuity to worship. It's what we preached on last week. Then verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the one that is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came back. 
They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, oh, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, come, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of town and and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. But he said to them, I have food. Food to eat that you do not know about, food of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Teleo, like it is finished. My food is to finish his work. Work that is food. That's weird. Normally, work expends energy and food replenishes energy. But this work is food. What kind of work is it? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So what's his work? Do you not say there are Four months, then comes the harvest. That's hard work, but harvest is food. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus says, the fields are white for harvest, guys. Look, look, look. And so they they look, and what do they see? Samaritans. Yeah. In Samaria. Yeah. Not exactly what a Jew would define as a fertile field. Already, Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. That's this amazing prophecy in Amos 9.3 that we don't have time for. But anyway, Jesus, Jesus sows and reaps, and yet that happens through many people over time. Verse 37, for in this, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Well, the work of the Father is the harvest of the earth. And so what do we know about the harvest? The harvest, number one, what the harvest is, worship. Jesus just said that's what God wants. He wants worshipers in spirit and truth. Another way to say that is faith in mercy. In the Revelation, it's grain and grapes, which is bread and wine. Number two, where does it grow? In in broken soil, dirt, and excrement, our hearts, humbled hearts. Paul says it, we are God's field. Number three, how does it grow? Well, nobody knows. It's life, and Jesus is life. It needs light, and Jesus is light, and water, and Jesus says he provides living water. Number four, how is it measured? Well, it's not, at least not by us. Uh, one Samaritan is worth, every, worth everything to Jesus. One, si- one seed contains the kingdom. You remember how Jesus talked about that? And God is the one that separates the wheat from the tares and the wheat from the, from the chaff, the kernel from the chaff. Well, number five, how is it sown? As a seed. And what is the seed? The seed is the word. And who is the word? The word is Jesus. And the seed dies like body broken and blood shed. Number six, how is it harvested? Like fruit, it's bread and, uh, and, and wine. That's the harvest of the earth in, in the revelation. The harvest is Jesus, it's the life of Jesus in us. Well, okay, how, how do we work the harvest? Well, this is what Jesus did. Number one, Jesus was vulnerable. He asked her for a glass of water. Remember that? I mean, he asked a Samaritan in Samaria for a glass of water. Hey, did you know that down the street, just two blocks away, is like Denver's biggest gay bathhouse? 32nd and Zunai. If you were thirsty, would you go in there and ask him for a glass of water? Number two, Jesus didn't take offense when he was offended, when she insulted him. Number three, he asked questions and cared. He actually cared about the answers. Number four, he spoke truth. Yeah, painful truth, painful truth that could just like break a heart wide open. 
He spoke truth. And number five, he spoke love, like seed into broken soil. And then number six, the woman did the same thing. <laughs> she bore witness. And check this out. She had no evangelism training, right? She didn't even know the four spiritual laws. Check this out. She didn't even know the plan of salvation. All she knew was Jesus. And Jesus didn't tell her. No, you, you go and you go, you go, you go witnessing, you go witness. No, no she wanted to go witness. It, it was not like work. It was, it was like food. Fired her up. Jesus gave her water and food. What kind of work gives you energy like food? Most of the time, I find my work to be just like totally exhausting. <laughs> you know what my kids used to do at this age? How they would occupy their time? They played church. Isn't that weird? Elizabeth was usually the preacher, of course. But they would like uh, go up in their room, play church. Elizabeth would preach. Uh, they'd say prayers, write songs, uh, recite stuff, look all holy. While Coleman crawled around on the floor looking for things to eat, they played church. And I didn't tell them to do it. They wanted to do it. It gave them energy. They wanted to do what they saw their father doing. And it was joy. Why? What is play? Play is work without responsibility, right? Play is, is work. I mean, kids work hard when they play. Play is work without fear. Play is work with faith that it is finished, teleo. You know, when I used to witness, I mean, my testimony was always just like laced with fear because I thought I had to defend Jesus. Explain Jesus. Get all creative to make Jesus look good. You know, a creative witness. Well, the last thing a courtroom judge wants is a creative witness, right? I mean, what is a witness's job? A witness just bears testimony to what that witness has seen, uh, what they have heard. Well, well, I was terrorized, terrified that, that, that I'd fail, that if I messed up explaining how much God loved a person, that person would not believe that God loved them and then God wouldn't love them, but torture them without end. I was terrified because I thought God's love depended on our choices. You know, the reformers in the Reformation, Calvin and Luther, they said, no, that's awful. His love is not dependent on our choices, but his choice. However, if you don't choose in this life, if you don't choose, it means you're not chosen, which means God does not love you. And so you see that, that that's, that's better and way, way worse, right? Way worse. So I'd witness in fear, terrified that people I loved weren't in the picture on my father's death, e desk, e either because God never loved them and never would love them or because it was up to me to get God to love them. So I'd witness in fear, which is witnessing to faithlessness. I'd witness in fear fear that God would not save, which is witnessing to my faith that I am the Savior and that I love people more than God and I am more mighty to save. My fear is faith in me that I am the Savior of the world. Yeah, talk about stress. That'll stress you out. I, I used to hate, hate, hate absolutely hate witnessing. I get on a plane and just pray that the guy next to me would read a book, you know? And you see, the problem was that, that I didn't need more training. 
I didn't need more fear. I just needed, and I think I probably still need, I do need, I, I just needed to get the picture. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, that they believed. That means the Samaritans are saved. That means they're in the picture, saved from condemnation already, John 3, 18. Saved from the wrath of God that was already on them, John 3, 36. Saved because God so loved the world, John 3, 16. Next verse, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them there in Samaria. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, or truly, the Savior of the world. This truly is the Savior of the world. What does that mean? It means that Peter Hyatt is not the Savior of the world. Awesome, that's good news. Jesus truly is the savior of the world. He came to finish his father's work and he did. Knowing that all was now finished, lifted up on the cross, John 19, verse 30, he said, it is finished. Bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This truly is the savior of the world. Doesn't say some of the world. Savior of the world, said, said the Samaritans. Jesus doesn't correct them. John doesn't correct them. Savior of the world. And check this out. Jesus is standing in Samaria. He's staying in Samaria. Matthew 10, 5, Jesus tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep, Apolumi sheep, the perished sheep of the house of Israel. But check this out. The Samaritan woman just called Jacob her father. And Jesus doesn't correct her. Jacob is Israel. The Samaritans believed that they were the lost sheep of the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, descended particularly from Ephraim and Manasseh. They believed, they, they had faith. Paul even taught us that we are the children of Israel by faith, children of Abraham, children of Israel by faith. Well, the Jews in Judah, the southern kingdom said, no way, you Samaritans, you're Assyrians and half-breeds at best. You are out of the picture. Are they? This is rather weird and kind of amazing. But there actually is, it was in National Geographic a, a while ago, still an ethnically pure group of a few hundred Samaritans still living by Mount Gerizim. Uh, genetically, one of the most pure groups uh, in all the world for their particular, uh, whatever you call that. In recent genetic testing, they tested the Samaritans, and they found that uh, the genetic tests clearly uh, indicate descent from males in the tribes of Levi, Ephraim, and Manasseh. That's Israel, at least on the, the father's side. And check this out, Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph, of whom the older brothers grew jealous. And so they sold him into slavery in Egypt. They faked his death and lied to their father. In other words, they lost Joseph on purpose. Don't go to the Samaritans. What you call Samaritans, said Jesus. But go to your brothers, the lost brothers of the house of Israel. See what I'm saying? There's a picture on the father's desk and in the frame there is not one son named Judah when we get the word Jew. But there are 12 sons. And Jesus sees that picture. 
12 sons, each a different well, each a different story, but each in the same picture with the same father, and Jesus sees that picture. And so he isn't talking to a Samaritan outcast outside the picture. He's talking to Joseph and the daughter of Joseph, a very, very, very deep well. He feels the pain of rejection, a thousand years of war, and he also knows the father's delight in her. She's a lost sheep of his father's house. You know, in Matthew 15, 24, I think Jesus even reveals that a Gentile Canaanite woman is not a dog eating crumbs under the table, but in fact she is too a lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's why he heals her. Ezekiel 16, God tells Jerusalem that on that day he will restore Sodom. Read it that on that day he will restore Sodom and Samaria and give them to Jerusalem as sisters, that's Gentiles and Samaritans, in the house of Israel. See, the father has a picture on his desk. And inside the frame is Joseph and Judah, Samaritan and Jew. Inside the same frame is Isaac and Ishmael. Jew and Arab. Inside the same frame is Jacob and Esau. Read it. Isaac blessed them, them both. And, and I wish we had time to talk about Esau. God hated him, and yet God is love. So even that hatred is a function of, of, of his love. God hated him on our behalf. The firstborn from whom we stole the birthright, in whose clothes we dress ourselves in order to receive the Father's blessing. Well, anyway, Esau and Jacob in the same frame, inside the same frame is Cain and Abel, like Paul says in Acts chapter 17. We are all God's offspring, Deuteronomy 32, 8. Is he not your father who created you, asked Moses? Yeah, we're, we're estranged, we're lost, we're dead, we're punished, we're destroyed. Yeah, that's true, but sons, just like the prodigal son, lost and dead. Remember, that's how the father describes him, lost and dead. But our father is mighty to save. See, the father has a picture on his desk, and that picture is found in Genesis 1.31, where everything God created is good. It's the seventh day. That picture is also found in Revelation 5.13. It's the seventh day. And I heard every creature, writes John, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, singing to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and praise and glory forever. You see, that's the lamb that is slain. That's Jesus who delivers an entire new creation to his father for Christmas. The whole family in the same frame before the throne on the desk. And when you see that picture, it changes everything. Every breath you take, every move you make, it changes everything. For you are no longer controlled by fear, but love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes this. The love of Christ controls us. Does the love of Christ control you? The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. So I think that means like all are in his picture and he is mighty to save and he loves to save and he wants me to share in that love, that joy and so with a gleam in his eye he calls to me, Peter, let's harvest! 
Indeed, he is the savior of the world. Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth it has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, on the living God, not us, on the living God, who is the savior of all people, People, especially those who believe, command and teach these things. Indeed, he is the savior of the world. Now listen, that does not mean that judgment will not be severe. In fact, I think it will be more severe than any of us even begin to understand. It doesn't mean that nations won't go into the eternal fire and the Colossian. It doesn't mean that some won't be cast to Gehenna along with their sins. It doesn't mean that sons won't gnash their teeth in outer darkness. No, it doesn't mean that. It means that that is not the end. It means that wrath, pain, and death are not the end but a means to the end. And what is the end then? Well, what's the end? Rather, rather the question should be, who is the end? He told you, I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. His name is Jesus. And you know what that name means? God is salvation. He's the end. God is salvation is the end. <laughs> I mean, to me, there, there's nothing more thrilling than that thought. And nothing more terrifying. Thrilling for the ones you love are in the picture on your father's desk. And terrifying for this man may also be in the picture. Still want to be in the picture? If not, maybe you're not in the picture. Or the picture burns you like eternal fire. Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, I think that includes Ishmael, son of Abraham. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. That's the judgment, says Jesus. How you feel about the brothers, Cain, Ishmael, Esau, Joseph, Judah, the, the brother is your judgment. You know, Jonah hated them, and so he judged himself out of the boat and into hell. That's what the text says, hell. Hell until he repented, and hell barfed him up on the beach in order to preach. The early workers in the vineyard, they hated the late workers and they hated grace and so they judged themselves out of the picture. Remember in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother, like the older brothers, the older brother hates his little brother, his lost brother, his apolumi brother, his perished brother. He hates his little brother and that means he hates his father, which means the party burns him and so he judges himself out of the party into a field into outer darkness. Do you want to be in the picture if this person is also in the picture. But let me tell you, if he is, he won't be the same. And you won't be the same. Because neither of you will be able to stop singing about the lamb on the throne and what he did for you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, do you want to be in the picture. Do you want to be in the picture if the person you hate most in all the world is in the picture? My guess is that that, that person is, is not this guy, Osama bin Laden. My guess is that that person is probably like a father 
or mother, husband, wife, sister, brother, stepbrother, half-brother, maybe a neighbor. If you lived in Jesus' day and you wanted to curse them, you'd call them a Samaritan. John 8, 48, they said to Jesus, ain't it the truth, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. Do you remember Jesus' answer? <laughs> he said, well, I don't have a demon. Hey, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He's from the house of, of Judah. But yeah, that, that's true, but check out his family tree. Um, Rachel, the, the, or Rahab, the, the prostitute, Canaanite, Ruth, uh, Bathsheba, I mean, plenty of Gentile blood and plenty of Samaritan blood. And remember, the Samaritans descended primarily from Joseph, and Joseph is and was a picture of Jesus, rejected by all his brothers, and yet he saved all his brothers. And that wasn't the last time. That wasn't the last time a Jew was saved by a Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan. And it's clear from the story, and all the early church fathers agree with this analysis, it's clear from the story that, that we are the man that's half dead, the man that's lost, the man that's perishing on the side of the road. And the law, it just passes us right by, it doesn't help us. And religion passes us by, it doesn't help us. But the one that saves us is a Samaritan. And his name is Jesus. And this is the judgment. Will you let him save you? Will you let the one you've learned to hate save you? Will you let the one that you nailed to the tree save you? With every sin, every lack of grace, you nail him to the tree because he has made himself your brother. When you really see that, when your heart is humbled and broken, when your heart is ready to put faith in, in his mercy, when you're ready to, to, to worship, when you know that you're lost, you're ready to be found. In other words, then it's time for the harvest. So in Samaria, among the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus said, look, the fields are white unto harvest. I think he's still saying, look. Look, sanctuary downtown. Look, look, look. Do you see outcasts? Do you see broken hearts? Dirty fields? Do you see people that are humbled and broken and ready for grace? Look, look, the fields are white unto harvest. Get the picture? They're in the picture. So go tell them. The fields are white in Samaria because the Samaritans are ready to be saved by a Jew. The fields did not seem so white in Judah. For the Jews in power were not willing to be saved by someone that they called a Samaritan. Or even someone that would let Samaritans into the picture. Actually, they didn't want you in the picture. And you have not wanted others in the picture. And so what does the Father do with all his wrath? Well, he breaks his own body. He tramples the grapes of his wrath and bleeds his own blood. Revelation 14, it's the harvest of this earth. It's the food of which this world does not yet know. But you do. And so he took bread that night and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it, 
Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. I heard of a Gallup survey they did just recently where they asked um, Americans, what is it that you most want to hear? These were the top three answers in their order. Number one, I love you. Number two, I forgive you. Number three, it's time for dinner. (laughs) You see, what they most want to hear is what God is wanting you most to tell them. It's also what my kids love to say. I mean, they, they love making this proclamation. Come to dinner, it's time for dinner. It's time for dinner. Believe the gospel and you will preach the gospel. Come to the table, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, dark cups are wine, light cups are juice, but they're both mercy. So, I'm an okay father, but God is a great father. I mean, he's not a worse father than me. He's a better father than me. And he sits at a desk on a throne and he governs the universe. Every quantum particle, every supernova, billions of light years away from us, every hormone in your body and thought in your brain. He governs the universe and uh, if he's a better father than me, there's a picture on his desk. And every now and then he just stops and stares at it. You are in the picture. And when you see that, and you see what he went through to get you in that picture, that you didn't deserve it, that he did it. When you see how he loves you, and you stare at that picture, and you stare at him, well, you'll start thinking to yourself, well, I'd like you to do that for her and for him. If you save me, could you save them? And I think the father then says, hey, take another look at the picture. (laughs) Go tell them what I did for them. You see, I think when you believe his love for you, then you want it for everybody. And uh, tonight I talked about all kinds of things that stress people out, but the things that stress people out are just Bible verses, so you got, you got to deal with them. But I think the practical application point is this. God loves you, and I think he loves everybody. Oh, that's incredibly thrilling. And it's also kind of terrifying. But he showers you with his mercy, and you see in this world he's given you his heart. Why? So you'll enjoy being in his picture. (laughs) In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.